This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 824, a conversation with Eric and Julia Leewald. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 824. It's our conversation with Eric and Julia Leewald. Uh, it's actually not the first time I've had the uh, the pleasure of speaking with, with both Eric and Julia. As I previously spoke with them in episode 560, way back in March 2018. Oh... For those halcyon days of yore, <laughs> long before COVID, long before social distancing and uh, wearing masks somehow became more of the norm, I was wondering the other day, you know, as I was I uh, was going to an acupuncture appointment here in Toronto, Ontario, and I had to be on the public transit system, which, you know, I used to take multiple times per day. I used to go to the office, I used to travel between other branches of the bank I work at, uh, but uh, now I go once a, you know, once a week, uh, and it's very weird, and I was just thinking how weird it would be for you know a year ago me to suddenly be transported a year into the future and to see all the all the signposts that we are kind of used sadly used to now like you know every time you go into any type of indoor uh, area it's saying you know masks and face coverings are required and you know there's a lot of reminders we're all in this together and you know throughout like the subway etc and it's just such an interesting you know it would it would seem weird not, not not only weird it would feel like i, I was in the, I walked into a weird movie like that's not a real thing you know like that's not really how these types of things would be handled and no this is true anyways i don't know why i started with this weird diatribe um, i'm really happy to that i had a chance to sit down with eric and julia again to talk about uh working on x-men the animated series but also specifically to talk not just about their first book which we talked about on the last episode that they were on which was previously on x-men the making of an animated series which was absolutely fantastic and really should be absolutely required reading for anyone who's really enjoying the show, um, either because they always enjoyed it or they're you know new fans who've come to it with uh, Disney Plus, uh, or you know maybe uh, they're, now they're reading it with their or sorry watching it with their with their children. I know that's happened for me. Um, or you can also pick up their brand new book that came out in October, X Men: The Art and Making of the Animated Series. It is a beautiful. I guess coffee table size book. Um, this gorgeous shots inside. There's a lot of really interesting process design art. Um, and talking with them was really interesting to find out how they're able to kind of even pull together uh, the contents. So we also get into you know making the book and how the book project even came about. Uh, considering you know that their last project was focused more on I guess on the on the writing end. Although there was a lot of exhaustive interviews with a lot of the different cast and crew on the on the show. But obviously this is much more of a visual uh, kind of companion to the series. So this was a, a great pleasure to be able to sit down again with Eric and Julia. They've been making the rounds. They're on a million podcasts talking about this book, and as well they should be. It is uh, a tremendous, um, uh, you know, artifact of, of this amazing show that so many people love, that millions, you know, were watching back in the early 90s. And for a lot of them, their first, you know, first time they ever met the X-Men. And it's, you know, not hard to make the argument that you really wouldn't have an X-Men uh, movie in 2000 if not for the popularity of the of the TV show. Obviously, the comic was popular, but, you know, you're, you're and even at its most, it was cracking a million in sales, but a lot of those were duplicate covers, etc. Whereas something like the X-Men animated series was pulling in multiple millions of kids and 
impressionable kids back when Saturday morning cartoons were a thing, and it was appointment viewing. Um, anyway, so this was a lot of fun ch- chatting again with Eric and Julia. Again, if you want to check out the last episode I did with them, that's back in the archive, episode 560, um, and that's from March 2018. Uh, so I'll jump right into the episode in just a moment, but first I just want to remind you, you can email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. You can rate the show on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. I guess technically it's Apple Podcasts now. Um, and also, uh, upcoming episodes include Michael Lark is going to be back on the ep- on the show. I think that's going to be episode uh, 828, if I had to guess. Uh, 826 should be a conversation with Adam Hughes. Very excited about that. And we're working on some other uh, good stuff to ha- coming down the pike as well. Uh, I-, I feel like I keep kind of in my head thinking, I just got to get to 1,000. Because <laughs> I've joked before on the show that, you know, every year when I get close to the centennial, I think about kind of wrapping it up and saying, you know, what are the last few interviews I really want to do before I kind of end the show? Because, you know, nine hundred uh, is well, usually it's like 800 is a good run, 700 is a good run. But I feel like once you get to 900, that's not really an option anymore. You got to keep going to 1,000. So probably have just under two years left of the show. So uh, it's going to be, you know, trying to see who are the ones I really need to get on the show uh, to try and chat with before I wrap it all up in less than two years and move on to something else. So, uh, anyways, thank you again for downloading this episode. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation with Eric and Julia. Enjoy. Eric and Julia, welcome back to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. How are you today? Hello, fine. Good to hear your voice again. Yeah, great to hear you. Absolutely. It's great to have you guys back. It's uh, It's been an interesting and an event-filled two and a half years. It's interesting to see how the X-Men animated series uh, profile seems to have risen now that Disney Plus has it on the platform. And obviously you guys are you know very active on social media talking about it as well. So it's nice to kind of see this this resurgence of this series that everyone's loved for a long time, but now new people are discovering it on Disney plus and how important has that been to you guys to see, you know, people coming to it, some of them for the first time or re-experiencing the show that has, you know, hasn't really been around for a while. Disney plus was a real sort of happy accident for us. I mean, who knows how long the various wheels were turning before, before good old X-Men, the animated series uh, ended ended up on Disney plus, but it's not like they called us and said, guess what? <laughs> we found out what everyone else found out. And it's been thrilling because uh, it, it, it appears to be profoundly successful there. Uh, and yay. Yeah, yeah. and we, we've gone to cons, uh, 2018, 2019, um, you know, every month and met with thousands of fans uh, after we'd done our, the first book, after we'd done previously on X-Men. And... They were all, you know, why is it in there? Uh, they were all dying to see it again. And you couldn't find DVDs that, yeah. yeah and there DVDs, was no Blu-ray. DVDs were kind of sold out, and they were having a hard time finding it. We realized that uh, it had been on, been on a couple, it been on a number of things over the years. But uh, as Disney Marvel got the rights back together and were arranging to put it on Disney Plus, they. The previous contracts with various outlets had been run out, so they were in effect holding it for about a year and a half, uh, and it still wasn't playing anywhere for a year and a half, and it was frustrating the fans. And then when it came out, there was obviously this build-up demand for it, and the wonderful thing that happened, of course, as you mentioned, uh, all these fans from 25 years ago now have children, and so by the tens of millions are sitting down and watching the show on Disney Plus with their kids, which just you know doubles the the fan base, which is which is wonderful. 
Absolutely. So I'm curious about, you know, what was the original reaction to previously on X-Men and then how did that kind of lead to the new book? And was it always kind of conceived as maybe a sequel or more a new project kind of focusing on a different aspect, this time more on the art? Well, and, and again, I keep you know, happy accidents and pleasant surprises here, but it, it's been, a, it's, since we spoke with you last, it has been um, a real ride. Uh, Eric wrote previously on X-Men and came out in time for the 25th anniversary of the show, and there really hadn't been any other kind of concentrated material dealing with X-Men, the animated series. So with previously on X-Men, that was our entree to go to cons and fests and just start meeting people and hearing how popular the show was. Yeah, that was really our only ambition was to, to get the to, to get a history of the show down in print. Back We started that back, believe it or not, in early 2015. We started the first book and it took about two and a half years to get together the whole thing with all the interviews in it. Um, and at the time, as you may know, Adam, the... For the longest time, you know, X-Men was kind of slapped together with two or three different groups of people who had rights to it. Uh, Fox did, uh, Mar- you know, Marvel did, and Fox and Disney Marvel were competitors. So five years ago when we started our book, the first book, there was absolutely no interest in promoting X-Men, the animated series, because comp- competitive people had various rights to it. And it was a bit of a garage band uh, production to begin with, so there was no mega studio behind it, you know, pushing it over the years for merchandise or for for renewals or for new versions. And uh, so we were. Eric wrote that with, with the sort of the fair use doctrine because yeah. we, we couldn't get Disney or Marvel to return our calls. No one was interested in supporting the book. Yeah. Uh, or the, the creation of the book. So, and then. And then, and then <laughs> after the book was out for a while, uh, early uh, 2019, we get an email from. Uh, head guy at Marvel, uh, Sven Larson, who's head of uh, licensing, worldwide licensing, and said, you know, okay, we've read your book and we're going to talk to him. We thought, oh my God, he's, they're coming after us because we used too much material in a book that without Marvel's permission. Yep. I said, no, 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 it's, it's not that. It's, uh, you know, everybody in the office has read your book and loved it. And now, at that time, or in early 19, they, they knew that all the rights were coming back together when Disney was buying Fox. So they said, we're looking at a couple dozen projects, but at the top of the list, we want to do a big, very different uh, coffee table book that celebrates the art of the animated series because we couldn't afford even color printing on the first <laughs> book. It was, it was a small publisher, and they did what they could, and it got... You know, 450 pages of dense history. In yes, it, dense history. But almost none of the visuals from the show. And so, instead of saying, there's a big demand out there, there's still tens of millions of fans, this, you know, can you know, can we do this book? You know, we're going to do this book one way or another. Do you guys want to be, uh, you know, involved in it or uh, running it? And we said, you know, how can we say no? So, uh, we went into it and with an idea of being very, very different, complementary, uh-huh. obviously, there are overlaps because it's the history of you know, some of the history of the same series and some of the same players. But to give you a different idea, the first book has over two hundred thousand words. The second book's maybe thirty thousand. It's ninety percent images, beautiful art from uh, you know hand painted cells from the original show, and a lot about the production of the show. We were we were concerned we 
wouldn't be able to find a lot. And 90-some percent of it has been thrown out over the years, which is really, was really a heartbreaker. It was not done on computer. Computer animation was, was not a thing back then. It was too primitive. So everything was, this is one of the last great you know, hand-drawn animated shows. Hand-painted cells. Yeah. So there was no, unless unless people paid for specific storage, unless people, and, and people didn't back then. They so just we, didn't. So we found it in, you know, we found cells in, in producers' basements and people's storage lockers uh, at, at a wonderful uh, gallery called Ben Eaton. They had a bunch of excellent cells and were happy to let us use them for the book. So it was a real treasure hunt. Uh-huh. About the first six to nine months of making the book was just going around trying to find material to, 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 make, to show how wonderful the show was. And at the same time, we got together with a couple of the, act, of the artists, Larry Houston, uh, Rick Hoberg, some others, and they did, they did have done original art for the book which is really something special. The people that were ba- were in charge of, of, of making the show look the way it did, uh, Will Minio, uh, in, the, in the 90s, and they have done the original X-Men work for the book itself. Wow. Now, a question, this kind of comes back to well, something I was going to ask. Obviously, the social media presence that you guys kind of operate under, Julia, you're, you've been a big part of kind of spearheading that. But it's interesting to see the veil kind of pulled back and now kind of luring Larry into, you know, kind of the online area and now kind of, you know, making him a big kind of Twitter star in terms of people who really love the, the, the series because he's, he's kind of this, you know, this figure who's so important with the visual style and the cameos that a lot of people loved with the series, yet he was never really known, I guess, to, unless you were really into animation. But now we're finally getting to understand more of his, you know, his presence, and he's doing more interviews and, you know, commenting. He's obviously featured heavily in the book. What has that process been like to kind of, you know, take this guy out of, you know, he's obviously big in, in animation circles, but people maybe didn't know about him, and he was so profoundly impactful in making the series visually what it was and making it so adherent to the comics. So, what has it been like for you guys to kind of, you know, let him finally come out of the shadows? It is the irony is that he is the the most pleasant, you know, most self deprecating guy, and uh, yeah, honestly, if you didn't drag him, it wouldn't have hurt to have yeah. self promote. I mean, it's the same thing. The, the, the two principal people behind the look of the show are Will Minio and Larry. Uh-huh. Uh, those two who have worked together before for years and years and years. Um, neither one of them is. Much of a self promoter. No. In fact, uh, we got we got a, uh, an interview for the book from Will, but he doesn't go to cons. He doesn't go out and promote his art uh, the way Larry has started to. And you know, we look at a similarly successful show, uh, you know, the Batman show, and people know, oh, you know, Paul Dini. They're all and, rock stars. You know, they, 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 or, or you know, the, the people involved in the design of that show, which is a stunning, stunning show, uh-huh. uh, which is our, in effect our sister show, a sibling show, which we we had great affection for, which Will and Larry worked on uh-huh. on some some storyboards for. But we'd seen books and we'd seen articles and we'd seen press over the twenty five years about uh, about some of the people involved in that, some of the artists, and we just we really didn't wonder. I mean. Larry has worked on 80 shows in his 40-some years in, in the business. 
And we all know how good he is. We know how special Will is as, as a designer. And I'm going to, Larry, uh, groundbreaking as the first uh, black storyboard artist in Saturday morning TV animation. Back in 79. Yeah. So, oh, wow. so he was a bit, a bit of a trailblazer. Yeah. And yeah, these guys, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's funny, but it's almost it's the same thing with the cast. Um, I mean, here you have possibly the most beloved cult show in the last 30 years <laughs> for kids' shows, and nobody knows until about a year and a half ago when they started coming to cons. No one could, you know, knew the names of the people that did the voices that stick in their heads and are, you know, the X-Men voices to the vast majority of X-Men fans. Yeah, what Eric is saying is that for the last 25 years, they had uh, Cal Dodd, George Boozle, Lenore Zen, all, the whole cast of voice talent had not been approached about going to conventions. And it's like, wait, what? <laughs> wait, what? <laughs> so it wasn't until Eric started talking with them about you know, interviewing them to sort of create previously on X-Men that that seed kind of got planted. Right. And and, um, and they realized there's these fans out there. The fans go crazy for them, but nobody had bothered to call until we called them back <laughs> back in you know 2017. Uh, 2017 about the book. What what do you think causes that kind of disconnect? Because you, you bring up Batman, obviously that's you know the uh, at the same time as your as X Men was coming out, Batman was the other kind of big uh, animated show. And you're right, you know the voice talent, everyone kind of knows, you know Kevin Conroy, and they know Mark Hamill, you know for his portrayal of the Joker, and they know all those all those guys. What what do you think it was about not just X Men but also the other Marvel shows at the time like Spider Man, where those two shows were so huge on Saturday mornings, and yet. People don't really talk about them, and you know that that voice talent doesn't really get recognized to the same degree. And we don't know the names, or you know, the art style didn't end up permeating a whole other series of of shows. Whereas you know, the the Bruce Tim look, you know, obviously ended up becoming the the standard bearer for those DC shows that kind of spilled out after Batman. I think it's it's the fact that Batman was was part of this massive Warner studio was behind it, and from the beginning, and so you had this this major Hollywood studio that saw that Batman and its look and future iterations of the show would be it's, it's an evergreen property for them. Yes. And so they would invest in it and they would do the marketing and they would do the PR and they would get behind it whereas X-Men was this you know, Marvel was a, was a little comic book company going bankrupt yeah. during our show. <laughs> <laughs> It was thrown together with Saban, and Saban didn't care about the Marvel characters, and, and Fox Kids was was kind of going a little bit out of, you know, was only was around for a few years. So it was three or four small companies got together, made the show, kind of disbanded when the show when the X Men show was over, uh-huh. and nobody was a was you know uh, was a uh, uh, stand uh, kept it alive the way Warner studio kept Batman alive and it's it's natural I mean they they didn't have a financial you know future in it so you know why, why do it but in the same way and I always bring up you know Paramount and Star Trek you know, throughout the years you know Star Trek has had the, the support within the Paramount uh, studio family uh, and exactly like Batman with Warner Brothers it just you yeah. know X-Men the animated series came along at a time when there wasn't in place a big global machinery uh, unit 
like perhaps now in the year 2020, you've got Disney and you've got Marvel to combined now. So, so maybe, maybe that's an indicator of uh, a coming together of powers that are interested in the show. Yeah, if some, some if, if say if Disney had owned Marvel in 1992 and was behind the show and owned the show for the past 28 years, there would have been more support. There would have been more PR. There would have been more probably new shows based on the X Men coming out of Hollywood, but they just, it really just kind of got dropped, and I say between Marvel's uh, uh, 1996 bankruptcy and and just and the splitting up of the rights to the, to the original TV show, it was kind of orphaned. Do you think, I mean, obviously with the advent of social media, you know, fans can now communicate more loudly and more clearly and directly with, you know, something that they enjoy. How much do you think that would have changed the game? I mean, obviously people were, were watching at the time and the ratings were there, but then the show goes away. Do you think, you know, if there had been a social media at the time, it would have kind of tried to bring back the show earlier? Or do you think that would have been a factor? If I mean, obviously that's a, a big what if, and that's adding social media to a climate that it didn't exist. Uh, let me just say, as someone who wrote for X Men the animated series, I am really glad uh, social media didn't exist then. <laughs> just in terms of you know people uh, you know stopping their feet and pounding their fists, and you know you, that's not right or that's all wrong or you don't get it, you don't understand. We got we got to just play. Yeah, you we, know, it was we wonderful. Kind of, we winged it yeah. on, on the show, <laughs> and there, there obviously there were millions upon millions of fans out there. But while we were, it was in production, until it finally came out and got on the air, no, you know, nobody much knew what the show was going to be like, what it was going to look like. Uh, the fans had been disappointed for 30 years of, you know, of, of lots of great Marvel shows on attempts before. And so the, the expectations were fairly low. Uh, and when it became this, this massive hit, then, then nobody was questioning it. It's like, oh, the, the guy's got it right. You know, hands off. But when we were making it, we pretty much just wrote the stories and drew the, the images we liked. And Marvel kept on signing off on them, and Fox would sign off on them. But it wasn't, and that was without an audience present yeah, saying, yeah, "You have to do this yeah, one. You have to do yeah, that we, one." We didn't have a, a forum of hundreds of thousands of angry X Men fans <laughs> saying that we were going off canon, and or you know how. How dare we use one character and not use another character? You know what the pressure can be like. Yeah. And executives listen to stuff like that. And if you're trying to create a show, uh, outside social media pressure can make you change a show. And uh, so, as I say, our luck was we pretty much did this under the radar and were able to just simply do the show we would have done uh, anyway. And that, that would not be the... I don't think that would be the luxury today in 2000, in 2020. Um, you know, Marvel is so huge and they have so, the, there's so much invested in the X-Men world uh -huh. that there probably would be dozens of people who felt they had, would have an interest in every story twist in every character we chose and every detail of the show. And it could still, we could still end up with a good show, but it makes it a much more difficult, much heavier slog. Uh, when you have lots and lots of interested parties, perhaps with conflicting ideas about what a show could, should be. 
it's interesting, I guess, the, the magic of making an animated show in a lot of ways is that that first season is kind of flying without a net because if you're doing a live-action show, you have an almost immediate response where when you're in usually, you know, well, I guess in the traditional network model, by the time you're into the you know, fifth, sixth episodes, you're getting feedback. You're starting to know what's working, what's not, and you can kind of make course corrections. But with animation, it's obviously very different. First of all, by the time you even get the product back animated, you know, it might be so far along in the cycle you can't even make many changes, and you're kind of, you know, flying with what you have and then just hoping that works. Do you kind of like that challenge of animation, at least the first season, kind of being able to go with what, where you're going and then dealing with it afterwards and hoping people liked it? Well, the irony, well, not the irony, but the fact was that uh, after those first 13 episodes, we were all let go anyway because they mm. didn't, you know, no one knew if it was going to hit. No one knew if it was going to last, so you know, Eric was in for 13 episodes. I got to write one of them, and as soon as my work was done, it was out there looking for another job, you know, <laughs> not, not on X-Men, because that wasn't going to happen. It's, it's, a, it's a double-edged sword. The good part about it, uh, about uh, being able to simply do the do the 13 stories that you, you want to do, I mean, there's just, I don't know, certain arrogance or certain uh, naivete about it. Say, oh, I know this is going to be good. I can see it in my head. Uh, I trust the artists. This is all going to be wonderful. And so you just you write as hard and fast as you can, and you do that for five months before you see the frame of it. You're all done. You're waiting to see how it turned out. Uh, and it's kind of you know it's 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 all a matter of faith. Yes. Whereas the reverse, you write in in live action. You see the stuff that night. You know you see it in dailies. Uh, if you're if the jokes you're using, if the character shadings you're using for something aren't working on Tuesday, you can adjust them on Wednesday. And for all the other episodes going forward, so it, you're right. It, it is there is an advantage to live action to where it it, it allows you to learn quicker, uh, which we didn't have. We just had to cross our fingers and hope and, and imagine. A series we got to work on a little bit later, a couple years later, was uh, the Young Hercules series for uh, Renaissance Pictures with Hercules and Xena, uh, and being that being live action, happened to have the great good luck of a young star a fellow named Ryan Gosling, <laughs> and in you know the, the quick turnaround time, it's like this guy's good. <laughs> you know, we we you know he can you can have fun with him. You know he he, he can care he can do it all. Yeah, it, 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 it informed our writing. It, yeah, we probably took more risks and put more heavy demand on this kid mm-hmm. because the, every, the stuff we were seeing back immediately was looking so good. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, there is that advantage to live action, which we don't have. But uh, you know, in animation, just get used to it. Just get used to trusting yourself, hoping for the best. And sometimes it comes out better than you'd imagine. And sometimes it comes out just much worse. <laughs> and it's... I don't know, a more fatalistic setup, but uh, you, you know, you, you do your best and hope and hope for the best, and that's just that was it. Now, obviously, they're able to produce much quicker. Yes, and able to do, uh, you know, when when with, with with let's say animated features, they take longer. They they do rough versions. They do pencil sketch versions of of every scene, and they they massage it and do it over and over and over and over until they get it exactly the way they want. With us, it's just like one, one and done. <laughs> here's the script. Here's the storyboard. Here's the scene. Um, if something's not working, you have to trim around it. But there's no 
going, there's almost no going back and changing something. We got maybe a few retakes here and there, you know, where you might have a couple weeks to go back and and have them refilm something that's just obviously wrong, uh, like somebody's face or or a bit of background that got changed to where it shouldn't. You know, we had a little, tiny leeway there for a couple weeks. Um, more expensive shows have more time to go back and fix and fix and fix and fix. But with us, pretty much what you saw on the screen was what we wrote and handed off. Mm. So I have, a, I have a question about, and obviously the, the themes of the of the show are very kind of mature. I'm, I'm always curious about, you know, was there ever pushback at the time that this was going to be too mature? Because it, it, first of all, it plays so well; it still plays now. It's like it's interesting that Disney Plus has uh, the quote unquote an unofficial trailer for X Men, which is much more serious. And I started playing it today, and my wife overheard it, and my son like walks over because he hears it's X Men, and uh, she's like, "Is that appropriate?" Not realizing it was X Men, I'm like, "It's absolutely appropriate. Don't worry." <laughs> like he's seven, but like because it, when it starts, like it sounds very heavy stuff, and yet it's yeah. it's. You know, this animated cartoon that we all watched in Saturday mornings, how much pushback was there at the time because it is taking itself seriously, but also taking things in a very, you know, level-headed way of, you know, with a very optimistic view, but also showing some of the darker sides as well? I've got to give credit to the woman who made it happen, and uh, so Margaret Lesh, who at that time was the president of the newly minted Fox Kids TV channel network, uh, and who had been at Marvel... Uh, working as an executive there right before she got the job uh, as to be president of Fox Kids TV. And when she was at Marvel, she was a champion for getting an X-Men animated series on the air. For 10 years. For 10 years. Uh, could not find a buyer. <laughs> yeah. ABC didn't want it. NBC didn't want it. CBS didn't want it. Couldn't get a syndicated deal going. And she was convinced. She so appreciated what the X-Men could be. So when she got the chance as president of Fox Kids to make decisions, uh, do a lot, like the two, her two big marching orders were going to be, we're going to have a Batman series and we're going to have an X-Men series. Uh, and that's, she was the one who was pushing us to make it as, uh, never write down to the kids, you know, write it as mature and as honest as you can. And I, as someone who writes in children's TV animation, you don't hear that very often. That was very brave. Yeah, and we did get a lot. She got a lot of pushback. Yes. She and Sydney Iwater, who was a right-hand man, who wanted to push it as far as we possibly could, <laughs> they, they, uh, they protected us yes. from the, I mean, the pressure she was getting. She was showing it to local television stations, local affiliates, which are a couple hundred, you know, for Fox across the U.S. and Canada. And... They were, these guys just said, what the hell is this here show? You know, the scripture, here he is. You know, we're selling toys and cereal. You know, this this is like the Hill Street Blues. This is like <laughs> the nighttime adult drama. What, what, are you crazy? Yeah. And, and, uh, and so, so affiliates, advertisers, people with, uh, with uh, uh, some people involved from our, most of the Marvel people really supportive. Uh, but there were people within Marvel that you know, might have wanted to have a different tone. Yes. And so Margaret was getting bombarded with pe- pushing, people pushing back on the creative decisions we made. And, of course, this unfortunate thing is since it's animation, we had to wait five months. To, we had to write everything and draw everything before things came back and we could see that they were working. Mm. 
And uh, whereas, again, if, if it were a live action, you could record an episode or two, and within a week or two, everybody could say, oh, yeah, Star Trek's working or Star Trek's not working, mm-hmm. and commit to your vision. This was taken on faith from us who are writing and us who are drawing and us who are doing the voices and us who are the executive of the Fox from the core creative group, taken on faith that this very, very different kid show uh, is going to be is going to be success, and obviously, as soon as a week or two in, as soon as they saw it's going to be a number one hit, no pushback at all. Next, you know, the next four years, but during that seven months or so, between green lighting it and seeing the first couple episodes, there were, even just seeing a couple episodes as special previews and the, them getting good ratings, people still weren't quite sold. And then, you know, it run, runs for 13, and, you know, the kids across America and Canada are going crazy for it. Okay, fine. No more no more pushback. But you're right. It was the heavy, heavy fighting yes. to keep it as focused, as close to the books, as serious and adult as we wanted to make it. It's interesting because it sounds like such an improbable dream that almost the show shouldn't have happened because, you know, because <laughs> Margaret takes over, you know, Fox Kid, as you said, and it's kind of nascent to state and is immediately pushing something that's making, you know, you know, affiliates uncomfortable and is still able to have the presence of mind to, to stick by that instead of kind of relenting or doing the easier thing, but instead believes enough in their vision and is able to get, you know, kind of have the juice enough to push it through and then... You know, obviously, all the other things that ha- happy things that have to go work out with you guys on the writing side and the animation, etc. But it's almost this improbable dream that it even exists because you know you think that you know that's a, so much pressure for someone to be headlining Fox Kids this brand new thing to then immediately take on some major risks. Well, and she did. She literally put her job on the line because she had to answer to her higher ups. Yeah, her bosses didn't get the show at all. And at Fox it, Network. Yeah, and. and they just said you really risk your your, your career for this, and she said yes. And said okay, we believe in the market. That's why we hired you. You get thirteen episodes. You get thirteen episodes, and if and if it's not a hit, you're gone. And so that was you know she'd been given notice, and she still stuck by it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I know she did. She we we got a couple memos from her when when the pressure got you know, at, at its peak, you know, couldn't it be a little funnier or, you know, uh, uh, just, 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 a, just a, a hopeful, like, like, you know, isn't there something I can tell all these people to calm them down? And we write back in, in anguish detail that, you know, we, we think it's, it's got a lot of humor in it already, Margaret. Here, I even gave her less ones for, for the, I think for the, for the pilot, you know, here are the 58 things that are funny about uh, <laughs> Night of the Sentinels. And I think she passed it on to some people that just weren't getting it, you know, from reading the script and looking at the storyboards. Hmm. So I want to go back for a second. So you mentioned, um, you know, when your guys are putting together the new book, that it was kind of a treasure hunt to try and find stuff. Because uh, in, in, so much of it was not really around anymore. What was your favorite find or your favorite thing that you're like, oh, man, I'm so glad we found this. Let's put this in the book. Oh, well, part of the thing was, too, was just... And I think, Eric, you were mentioning it was a 2018, I think. We spent at least a year, year and a half uh, finding the stuff and sort of crafting it into the book. Well, it, yeah, well, spent, whatever, whatever we spent a year. <laughs> okay, whatever we spent on it, a thing 
stuff at each point was, oh my God, I didn't know, I didn't know this image existed, and oh my gosh, there's there's more of this kind of image, and then over here, oh wow, yeah. So there were several. There were several. Um, if you happen to have a copy of the book, yeah. uh, you can open up the uh, the. the the, the the things that were 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 kind of that became easier. There were a couple of artists, uh, uh, Dan Meisenmeyer and Mark Lewis, that were really good collectible. Mark had, had worked at cleaning up every single mo- character model from episode fourteen on, wow. from starting the second season on. So he had every single one of those in a box at home. And it scanned them in his computer. So just just finding Mark and then Lisa Meyer had done the same thing with the work, he, you know, the, the shows he worked on, uh, meant that we had character designs for for most most of the series. That was that was just, just if if Mark had done that, it would have been a lot harder to be as as detailed as we are. But as to, to answer your question, my two favorite things are. They, they are triple cell layouts. One of them is the is longer ship, the Shi'ar spaceship. And by layouts, it's it's a hand painted um, uh, background uh, that 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 is used then to move cells across it to, to create the illusion of movement. Right, and there's the, one of that, and there's one of Master Mold being rebuilt. Oh. You know, I guess in about the third or fourth season, uh-huh. and those three. They, they look seamless in the book. That's because we were wonderful editors in this Abrams book. But it's it's this crankly, you know, three part you know piece. It's this old old, old uh, 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 you know yeah uh, dry drying cracking paint on plastic and curled up bent. You know, yeah, just, and so uh, those 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 two were just they're just stunning. They give you. I mean, this is, it's like a panorama of the background of the world. One of the things that made Expense special, uh, the, we were told, we didn't realize when we were writing it, but the production people were telling us, oh, this was the most expensive, most headache filled, most <laughs> detail filled, detail filled, uh, tough to animate thing that they'd ever been handed. And part of it was that that's the nature of the the comic books, and so we were trying to push that as hard as far as we could. We didn't realize how much we were burdening the art, the art, and the animation staff to, to realize it as well as they did. And two things for me uh, in the, in the last part of the book, uh, just things that artists themselves had 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 kept over the years. Um, the various birthday cards that were drawn by some of the artists. For each other, you know, there's just a delightful one of you know uh, Wolverine in a bathtub, you know, <laughs> and a bunch of other ones with uh, celebrating a birthday cake that Wolverine has just demolished with his claws. I the, the fact that that kind of behind the scene glimpse just gives me chills. And then earlier in the book, uh, the the images that Will Minio had, sorry, Larry Houston photocopied for Eric and had marked marked them up with highlighter. And you did too. Well, yeah. He he, he wrote up with the highlight. I went through. I didn't know the as you may know, Adam. I I didn't know the characters very well. But I got hired hired and tossed in the deep end and just told to get this done very quickly. So Larry Houston copied the Marvel Universe, uh, you know, reference book. This huge reference book. Photocopied. Photocopied it and 
gave me a the Xerox of it. And so I just went through and I had to highlight who everybody was, what they felt about each other, what their powers were, what their histories were. Uh, and so there's some, of, there's some of that fun, just personal stuff in the book that oh. was went into making it. My favorite, uh, the image of Charles Xavier in a, in a coat with a pipe, but... You know, but he's standing. But he's standing, and and Larry had written, you know drawn a, an X through that, saying, "No, he can't walk. He is in a floating wheelchair now." It's like, <laughs> oh my god, that you had that page that had that on there that was like. It, and Larry had to warn me that this was, you know, this was during a very short time in the books where he could stand, and it's not going to be able to in our in our version. But all those things that had to sort of fall into place to to make you know, get X Men going to where it is. Two of my favorite pages are also toward the end. Where it's some of that fun ephemera. Uh, if you happen to go to a Pizza Hut back in 1993, <laughs> or you happen to collect Pogs, or you, you, know, you happen to go to Hardee's and uh, play with one of their placemat maps, you know, I, I love that stuff. And just seeing like the, the trading cards and stuff that, that the X Men have sort of been a part of just filled me with joy. So I have a question. Uh, we earlier spoke about some of the, again, the kind of the um, the unsung kind of heroes that don't always get talked about en- enough, and you mentioned uh, Rick Hoberg. So I recently did have, have the chance to chat with him about his involvement on the show as well as working in comics. Do you have a, a specific story about Rick Hoberg? Well, he, he and Larry are responsible for the front and the back cover art for the brand new book, and they they each did that because uh, they were excited about the fact that um, this, the art might be getting a little recognition. We don't know Rick that well. We do. I mean, the, the, the two people, the person that I got to know that I was closest to uh, on the art side, the two people during the production of the show were, were Will and Larry. And Will and Larry, Will actually, one of the only anecdotes I know about Rick was Will and Rick started in the business I guess the late 70s on the same day <laughs> at Santa Barbara they're hired you know the same oh hi I'm Rick oh hi I'm Will you know 41 years ago and they're still friends and they obviously both still contributed to the book um, and Rick and, and they met Larry pretty soon after that and the three of them knew each other and re- respect each other's talent and had worked together so much they had a shorthand when they were working together in this. That's true. That only comes from that kind of long association. And the same thing, there's a balance, uh, a mirror of that on the writing side where the two main principal writers for me, Mark and Michael Edens, were close friends of mine all the way back to college. And we'd written a bunch of things together over the years, both right after college and then between then and, and, and X-Men. So we'd known each other 15 years and had written many things together so I could I could trust them to lay out stories ways that I would really respect and enjoy same thing with Rick and Larry and, and Will they knew each other so well that they that there was just a built-in uh, trust there that that made the work better for everybody uh-huh. now let me ask a question. So again, about kind of working with other people, and obviously in the last few years, doing cons with the voice cast, etc. Now, obviously, sadly, Norm Spencer passed away recently. Um, are there any particular stories you can share of either working with him or kind of doing cons and, and this kind of of uh, type of appearances with him? Well, now here's the sad thing. Speaking as someone who wrote on the show, um, I never got to meet him. Never once got to meet him. They were voice talent. That they recorded everything up in Toronto. 
and it wasn't until Eric you started working on previously on X Men that you had the sort of opportunity to reach out to the voice talent directly and speak to them. Uh, and it, and so that that's the crew that we've been having fun with in the last year and a half. But sadly, Norm did not was not able to participate in that. Yeah, and, and it was it was a real shame because you know uh, the entire cast said the same thing. He was the fu- in, in the room. He was, <laughs> He was the funniest guy in the room. And he's playing Cyclops. And he's playing... <laughs> Who is not? <laughs> yeah. Playing a little bit stick-in-the-mud Cyclops that had to be a good soldier all the time. And so, uh, obviously, they had a wonderful uh, family of uh, uh, voice actors there that just had a great time. Yeah. Because we, we feel so bad, it's like we missed the party. Yeah. But we're here with our heads down writing the script. <laughs> They're 3,000 miles away in Toronto. And all our interaction with them was getting audio cassettes snail mailed to us, us listening, giving some notes so that they could maybe make a few adjustments on on the episode, the previous episode, for, for, and well, you know, in the same recording session when they would do the next episode. So we would we'd interact with them, and they would, you know, they'd read all the words we the thousands of words we had for them, but really didn't we 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 didn't. I didn't get to talk to any of them until 2015 when I started writing the first book, and that was that was kind of a revelation because yeah. you know, we had our own point, uh, perspective, our own point of view on what the five years of producing the show is like, and they brought a whole new perspective to me that helped inform the first book uh, about what it was like getting that done and uh, how for almost all of them. It was, you know, the highlight was really the, the the top show they ever worked for. They wish they all wish it would not have stopped. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now Lenore Zan, speaking with Lenore, uh, the voice of Rogue at a con, she shared a story with us that uh, that Cal Dodd and George Buza uh, both remembered with fondness. Norm Spencer apparently was a fantastic singer, as a lot of voice talent people are, but he was a really good singer. But if you happen to watch. Uh, have yourself a more like little Christmas and it kicks off with them decorating the Christmas tree and Cyclops trying to sing is the <laughs> hilarity in that it's Norris Spencer who apparently really can't sing but here he is playing Cyclops as someone who really can't and, and knowing that it's funnier to me to listen to it now because <laughs> he's trying so hard to be off key it's kind of cute now, Eric, a question about when you're working on previously on X-Men and as you said you start kind of interviewing you know the voice talent on the show was there an interesting disconnect because you're used to hearing these people only as the characters, kind of like a fan, and now you're actually interacting with them as people who worked on you know the words that you know you put to, to put together? And what was that kind of process like to kind of you know they've only ever been one thing or you've only ever heard them do one thing, and now suddenly there you know there's other people on the other end. Like it's again, it's almost like the fan experience of kind of demystifying they were a character, and now you're getting to know the real person. Yeah, yeah, um, I. It, 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 somehow, maybe it's a lack of imagination on my part, but um, it just was—it just—it just was heartening and nice. You know, these people that had been part of something that worked out so well for me, and that they'd done such a good job on it. It was just—it uh, was, it was more just, oh, how nice to finally get to talk to you. Um, so that I, I wasn't. The, the, uh, and, and they would have fun sometimes, and they, they'd lapse into the characters when we were talking, and they and, and that was always a great time for me. But it was it was more like 
it's, it's, it's hard to express, but when you have colleagues that have worked on something that was a wonderful experience, there's a there's a connection there. You're sharing uh, moments of joy and happiness and pride with them over something you've accomplished, and so it was more that that I was I was I was I was meeting I was meeting uh, beloved colleagues oddly for the first time uh, versus the getting getting caught up in what their character had been like. It was like, oh, so, so what was, that was your favorite episode? Well, it was, like, it was my favorite one to, you know, to, to edit, you know, when I was, <laughs> when we were writing it, it almost didn't happen. And, you know, I tell them stories about how say certain stories almost didn't come together. The ones maybe that they enjoyed. And so there was a, there was a, you know, it's like we were war buddies, but we'd been in different units. And we were going, and, and, we were going over, you know, various battles, and you know, what was it, what was it like in your foxhole? Where we're, well, where we were, it was kind of grim, but we came through it. Glad you were there too. So, so that, yeah, that was that was what was more what it was like meeting them. After having worked on previously on X Men and then working in on this book, were there? Were you surprised that there was still kind of new stones to unturn in terms of things maybe that were a surprise to you that you didn't know? Everything about the art was was a fun discovery because, again, that's just not a thing I do. I am a writer. I'm not an artist. And then to find these pieces and to just get a chance to look at how gorgeous some of this stuff was – by the time it ended up on your Saturday morning TV, it had, you know it had gone through a lot of different hands, hundreds of people, you know, for a lot of different things. And, and it, it looks fine, but but it, to, to see some of the original artwork for the characters and the layouts, wow, that's beautiful. Yeah, just just to, to understand the amount of effort and the amount of craftsmanship that went into making this show, that was a bit awe-inspiring. Something yeah. that I hadn't had to really get into depth in, in the first book because it was much more about uh, the, the politics of, or about what it takes to make a TV show from a from a head writer's point of view and what, what it was like getting the stories together and what it was like fighting the, the, the fights of keeping the tone straight. So it was mostly from a, a writer's point of view. And then we just didn't have the time or energy uh, <laughs> at the time to sit down uh, and find out what everybody else was going through. We were just thrilled, thrilled that they kept on coming up with good storyboards and, and good episodes. Uh-huh. And so, in sitting down with the artists and the production people, realizing this vast effort. I mean, the scripts were hard, believe me, and demanding. But that's just one element. This vast, I mean, the idea that maybe twenty thousand or more hand-painted paintings were required for one episode to to be moved across each other and to go from you know one to the next and how they how they managed to get the uh the the mouths looking right uh when they're being animated by koreans most of whom didn't speak english i mean just just the the details of the the demands of pre-computerized animation were pretty awe-inspiring to us. So there were a few personal, you know, a few uh, anecdotes that I hadn't heard. But in general, it was more finding out what 
all the other craftspeople were were struggling with that mm-hmm. we just had not had the time to learn. Yeah. Time. Fascinating. Now, a question about the book in general. Um, you know, it's it's a great book. When you guys were kind of working on it, um, and this is maybe a naive question, um, what were the what were the conversations with about kind of the length of the book and how much you'd be able to fit in and how much kind of ended up on the cutting room floor? At the beginning, it was like, oh golly, can we find enough? Will there be enough material that we can find? Because when we were when when they reached out to us about doing this book, we weren't given a list of storage facilities or uh, you know uh, library archives. It was Eric and me looking at each other, going, uh, "Who okay. we followed? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and let's hope they've got something." Do you think Larry? Do you think Larry Houston hung on to some stuff? Maybe. You know, and so it was that kind of back and forth. Who do we think we can call and reach out? And, and then, of course, once we got going, we found lots of things and. And yes, it could have been twice as long, but I don't think, I think there would have been, I think it would have been repetitive. I think it would have been, uh, there would have been too much. I think it's, I think it's right about the right length. There were. And we really curated. We really yeah, did a, had yeah, fun curating yeah, the images the, we used. The editor, Eric Kotler, who, who did this and has done a lot of books for Abrams, this is a really wonderful pop culture coffee table book, uh, uh, uh publisher you know they were they really helped us pick and choose they laid the book out they put everything in perspective they they, they helped us to call what what we had uh-huh. and focus it so that it, it kept its pace and uh, and it was, it was thorough but not overstuffed or padded and that was you know that it was there were a, a couple dozen things we would have liked in there but I bet I bet even if everything was in there that we really wanted, it would only be another 10 or 15 pages. Mm. So it's, it's almost everything that we thought was important. It's interesting to hear you talk about kind of how them laying it out and kind of figuring it out. It kind of sounds like, again, they're the animation department, so to speak. And this, in this, like you guys are writing the words, you guys have the grasp on that. And it's kind of figuring Absolutely. out. I had, to lay, I had to lay out the first book and I was not experienced at it and realized how hard it was with, you know, the limited uh, black and white sketches that I had for the first book. But I did spend several months in the back office room scanning, 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 scanning. We scanned (laughs) thousands of images and then would send them to the, uh, to the the publisher and they would arrange them and we'd all decide what was, Uh you know, what were the best ones and what were illustrated our points within each chapter the best every image in here passed through our hands in some way yeah and every word as well uh, so there's a real pride of ownership uh, for having done that it just it's a good looking book <laughs> yeah but yeah they, they made it yes they did and Liam Ferguson uh, deserves credit as layout artist the layout guy. yeah so there was there was the book editor and the layout guy those two guys together both of them intense X-Men the animated series fans so we, we we lucked out there. I mean, it didn't have to be that way. They could have just been talented uh, publishers, but both of them were just loved the series. So it was a work it was a work of love for them as well. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Going back to previously on X Men for a second, like how did 
how did the initial conversation kind of work with finding a publisher there and like and how did you kind of select Jacobs Brown I'm just curious because obviously as, as it kind of sounds like this was kind of a, a grassroots project that you know you wanted to put something together because no one else was and it's again such a different experience with the new book because now you have kind of the weight of Marvel and a bigger publisher behind you that's exactly right it's an L we just we just want to put together a book that uh, that documented uh, the the experience uh, we had and what everybody we could talk to had about the making of the show. Because uh, no one else was doing it, and if we didn't do it, it wasn't going to get yeah. done. Yeah, and so we had no illusion, you know, illusions about you know big sales or that there'd be thirty publishers knocking down our doors. And so when we brought it, when we uh, we had an agent send it around to a number of publishers. It was still at a time that the rights were split, and they they knew it was without Marvel's participation, and so there was a limited response. Which there were two or three places that showed serious three places showed serious interest, and I talked to people at all three of them, and it's just the people at Jacobs Brown have a real knack for for uh, pop culture. That's yes. almost all they do. They've got 30, 40 books out, most like eight or nine Star Trek books. Boys is a lot of the sea, Mary Tyler Moore show. They're very, this is their niche. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're nearby, they're in San Diego, so they drove up and, and spoke you know, to us in person, and they really made a pitch that, you know, they, that they were the, you know, the place for us and that we could write the book exactly the way we wanted to. The flip side of it is we had to do everything. <laughs> but it, there, was, there was a uh, a real allure to the idea that we weren't going to get you know, heavy-handed notes from the publisher saying, "Oh no, you can't tell that story, or you can't you, you can't uh, say something a little critical about that person." Uh, you know, they just let us tell exactly word for word the story we wanted to tell, and we're just there to properly package it and hold our hands while we did it. Did you, how did you feel about the freedom? I mean, at the time, you know, you have kind of more freedom because in, you know you're not it's not directly through Marvel and you can kind of speak more candidly, but at the same time, you're not wanting to kind of, you know, speak ill of anyone because you're also, you know, you're trying to show an unvarnished view of what this book was or what the series was like for you. How did you kind of approach that at the time? And was that kind of an internal pressure on yourself to make sure that, you know, you were being honest, but also being a little careful? Yeah. Well, I mean, the nice thing was we felt we were being honest. We had the people we interviewed, and there was a lot of interviews in it. So there were a lot of other people talking about the experience and maybe saying something that, that might have been trimmed by if somebody else had published it, if they, they had an interest in it. Um, but luckily, we and people that we interviewed were, were so happy about the making of the show and were such fans of it and were so aware that we were interview, writing a book and doing interviews for fans, but even when we brought up some of the negative stuff and some of the struggles and some of the fights, um, we were doing it from a place of, of loving having been through the experience. So there was a there's kind of a, a positive energy throughout the book yes. that made us because you know, we're writing it for fans. We're not it wasn't muckraking. We weren't trying to make anybody look bad. Uh, we were just trying to be honest. And I think we were able to do that in a positive enough fashion that even the, the struggles and the dark stuff came across, you know, as well-intended story. You know, we, we did what, 
what we did was well-intended. We understand what other people were doing was well-intended, but we had to fight them over it. So that's that. I think that took a little of that worry off of us. I wasn't. I don't think we were worried about offending anybody um, because we weren't trying to be nasty. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I don't think we pulled any punches either. Did you have hesitation about, like in that initial book, um, it's not a negative portrayal, but it's maybe not always the one we're used to of Stan Lee because his vision was maybe not what was the right thing for your show and his involvement, again, kind of counterproductive to where you guys were trying to go with it. And so you obviously characterize that in the book, which is obviously honest. Was there any hesitation on that because of his kind of, you know, obviously how people hold him in a certain regard and his kind of stature in that community? Sure. I mean, for that reason and also, I mean, we were friends with him. We did a couple, three more shows for him later when yes. he had a, a web, big web site on it. Uh, he hired us to you know, come up with uh, story ideas. There was there was an affection there for him, but uh, but as as I said, and I think I did take care since it was such a struggle, since it was perhaps the, one of the, the toughest struggles in that first year, is keeping our vision and denying Stan his vision which is everybody that worked on the show knew that and knew that in history, but it's not something we're trying to, you know, to put up in light saying, look, we, you know, we won and Stan didn't. We just wanted to show this is, I mean, this is what happens when really, when, when passionate. passionate people are, are trying to, to get a, get a show done and, and, and have differences. And so I, I think I, treated Stan with respect and understanding while let, you know while letting everybody know how how much of a, a struggle it could be uh, in, in dealing with him and uh, part of it was almost uh, it was almost funny at my expense was here's this young guy with his first uh, network TV show and he's having to say no to Stan Lee and that was the name of the chapter how could you say no to Stan Lee? <laughs> If you if you frame it that way, you know already that the chapter is going to have a respect for Stan, and so that's that's the way I framed it, and then tried to be as honest uh, as I could about all the differences once we got into the chapter. Hmm. No. I'll admit I was nervous. I was nervous, but that's me. <laughs> and you know, Eric was he was being absolutely honest. You know, and and the, those things happened and. It wasn't salacious. It wasn't mean spirited. It was just this. This thing happened on the way to making this particular show, and that's why we're telling you about it. Mm. So I have a, a two pronged question. Do you think one, if previously on X Men hadn't come out, do you think the art book would have happened? And two, if uh, it hadn't come out and the art book did happen, do you think you guys would have been contacted about working on it? I can tell you for a stone cold fact that. Uh, because we were told by the folks at Marvel that uh, previously on X-Men, they, they'd seen it, they liked it, and for them that was a proof of concept that there was a fan base out there that had a hunger for X-Men, the animated series, and that mo- that was part of the motivation for the X-Men, the art and making of book. Now, and that's one of the reasons they reached out to us was because you know, of the first book that Eric had done. Yeah. Now, if they had... But, but but also, they made it very clear that they were determined to do this book, the art book, 
they planned to do the art book anyway. Yeah, yeah, and, and there were two things in our favor. One was the previous book because they really enjoyed the tone of it and they they, they, they liked the way the writing went, and so they felt confident in in how we would approach this one. But also, Eric Kopfler at Abrams has a very strong feeling that if you can get people, creative people, senior creative people from within a project, that they have, that there's a value, a fan value, to having them be the people writing the book or, or as the core of the book, versus um, just say a good writer doing research, writing about X Men the animated series, and maybe having us do an introduction or you know a short interview. He, he he seriously believes that that fans appreciate it if the principal people involved in the project also do the book. So that so we had that going. Even if we hadn't written the first book, they probably would have uh, talked to us because of our, our involvement in the series. But there's no guarantee. You know, no guarantee. Odds are they might have gone straight to some of the artists, but that doesn't mean the artists would have had an interest in doing this. Or you know, it, yeah. we we don't know. We don't know if they would have approached us if previously on X Men hadn't existed. But I'm awfully glad they did. So. <laughs> I know a question about that. Like the um, if it hadn't been you guys, it's interesting. Like how who would they have gotten who would have had the same level of access or being able to get in touch with stuff? Like, it feels like you guys had all the key contacts, you know everyone, you worked with everyone. It, it seems like if you guys weren't involved, it'd be so much harder for anyone to kind of step in and figure out how to do this. Thank you. Thank yeah. you for that. <laughs> I, I, I think you're right. But, I mean, there are, there are authors that, that are they're just very good at researching and calling you up and getting in touch and and getting the feel for a project even if they weren't involved, they're just better, you know, excellent researchers and dogged, you know, the equivalent of dogged journalists. They, you know, they, they could have uncovered a great deal of what we already knew from having been part of it just through research and, and hard work. But we were, you know, we were a couple steps ahead uh, of that, and I think that's another reason they, they picked us. You know, we, we happen to have boxes stored up above our garage that had stuff in them. You know, Larry Houston is a friend uh, and, and, and critical to the X-Men series, and he had storage units that he let us claw through <laughs> to find yeah. things. And there's some things where, the, you know, the people will trust you. Like, we got Will Minio's interview for this book, which I think is crucial. Yeah. Because it, it showed a lot of the thought that went into the design of the show that no one else could have given you. Um, and Will is doesn't go to cons and is not that outgoing, with the, it doesn't do interviews, and probably wouldn't have done an interview for just a, a general book, but did an interview for us because it was us. Hmm. So a, a question about um, like working on the book. Now, you, you have some, uh, again, like some fantastic stories that are in there. I'm curious about one specific one where you mentioned, you know, obviously the challenges of the, of the fifth season. And I'm, I'm questioning about the, uh, you, you bring up the idea that the, the episode Descent was interesting because obviously there are no main X-Men characters at all. It's kind of a, an interesting outlier. I mean, it was near the end of the run of the show. Was there much pushback at all about kind of conceiving that idea or were you guys kind of, you know, let, left to do what you were going to do because it's the fifth season and you guys are kind of wrapping up anyway? 
you, what you said is exactly right. There was not a word. I mean, they were just either so trusting us or so done with us. <laughs> uh, by that time, I think, I think you know, they cut the budgets and Saban was in charge. Saban never cared what the stories were. We could have, you know, there could have been, you know, no human beings in an episode that would have occurred to them to, to, to give notes about it. They weren't, they weren't giving creative notes. So, not that looking back on it, I was amazed that that I looked at this pitch from two of our better writers and thought, "Oh, this is a cool story because it it expands our understanding of the history of mutancy." And so, just from a, I was fascinated. I mean, I understood why I was fascinated by it and why I greenlit it, but I had I didn't step back until years later and think, "Wait, how did how did I let?" an episode get written with no X-Men in it. Well, <laughs> it's our business to do X-Men shows. And, you know, I, it's, I was just, I, when I, you know, I, I put that up in the book because it was, a, it was a, like a delayed reaction on my part. Like I just was so deep into the X-Men world that this was fa- so fascinating as well. And it, it, I didn't step back as a, television professional and say well no it has to have a certain minimum number of our leads in it it has to touch this and it's, I just all that went out the window just because they caught my attention with this cool story do you think you would have ever been able to get a story like that approved if it had been in like the second third or fourth seasons well they took chances um, I gotta yeah. say um, it, <laughs> and I, the one that to me is always the we got away with that is uh, the, the episode Nightcrawler, the introduction of Nightcrawler, which is basically a, a profound contemplation, meditation on religion. And I still can't believe that, that um, the show got to do that. But but that was what second or third season, third season, I think. Uh, yeah. So th- during the run of the show, we were telling stories I didn't think we'd get to tell at all anyway. So yeah, they, they, there was a, just a certain amount of. Uh, liberty that we were given once it was a hit and everyone was making money <laughs> then uh, the, I mean again a lot of it comes from working under Sydney Eyewater to, to get one a name in, that has to get in there she was the hands on person Margaret had to supervise an entire network you know 10 series whatever Cindy was hands on with every line and every image and every recorded voice, he was the hands-on executive, and he just, he delighted in pushing boundaries. He delighted yes. in doing the most outrageous stuff. He delighted in his, in in the show getting in trouble, and got in trouble. So he, he made it possible for us to do all the incredibly wide variety of shows that we, we were doing. I think if Margaret had been more hands-on, she might have been a little more traditional, but Sydney was just blow it up. I mean, you know, do whatever you want. As long as you've got me excited and, and I'm loving the characters, run with it. He just was, he was eternally supportive. And the thing with, with Nightcrawler, we tried to make it a little less about God than, you know, in the first draft. They said, no, no, it's got to be, you know, push that. Make Wolverine struggle. Struggle over his, his, his relation to God. Make it front and center. So we got that kind of support from our main boss, our main overseer, uh, 
uh, you know, studio executive. They're, they're usually the villain. Yep. But <laughs> Not they allowed this show to happen. The word for them, we never would have written it. Just how rare is that level of support? I mean, obviously you guys have worked in animation for so long, or in TV in general, so just how rare is it to have that level of support from a studio executive you know, giving you your marching order, so to speak? Well, I, I, you read about it. It's, there's some wonderful shows, usually more adult shows, uh, uh, streaming services, cable television, that, that really take chances and are original. And you read later on that they had a wonderful, they had a great relationship with their executives. So they're out there. <laughs> but I'd say two thirds, you know, the majority of people in that position get very nervous because there's a lot of money involved and their career is judged on their success and failure. So it's just, it's not easy for an executive to just say, oh, try this extreme thing. And if we all fall on our faces, we're all going to get fired. And I may never get hired again. So there's a great deal of pressure on them. We understand that to not take the chances. But the people that take the chances are the ones that score the hits. Uh, nine out of ten times, it's something new and different that is successful. And that's that goes back for 50 years. But believe me, if there were a formula, we'd all be using the magic formula. There yeah. is no magic formula. <laughs> but I um, want to give a shout-out to Avery Coburn. Um, she... Uh, was the broadcast standards and practices person in charge at Fox Kids at the time, and her word was law. And if she hadn't understood X-Men the way she did, and if she hadn't um, been as sort of uh, forward-thinking as everyone at Fox Kids at the time, this never would have gotten off the ground. Because she could have, from the beginning, just shut it down. Said, this is way too adult, stop it. And that would have been it. Now, one one interesting part of the book that uh, didn't didn't make me laugh per se, but I thought it was interesting that you have to spend time on it with every book that you put out that's about X Men. Is that you have uh, at least three pages that are dedicated to text on the log lines for the show and putting it in the correct order. And so, how tired are you of doing that? None. I mean, it, it, yeah, a, little, a little bit. I mean, the fact that Disney Plus couldn't get it the right order yet. Oh, but you know what? I checked out yesterday. They've got the Phoenix Saga and the Dark Phoenix Saga in the correct order now. They do. They don't have the rest of them, but they got those. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's, 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 for the first six months at least, until recently, it didn't even have the Dark Phoenix Saga in order. It was one, three, two, four. It was just like, what? And the, the other parts, you know, uh, a number of the shows play just fine out of order, but some really don't. And if somebody's going to be binging it, we feel responsibility to get the word out that this is the order you need to, to watch them in. And um, we understand in real life, you know, there are production delays. There, there are, you know, uh, the, the one that chokes me is No Mutant is an Island, mm. which was the, the biggie episode that was supposed to follow. The Phoenix Saga. Right. And for various reasons, that one came back and it was just un, 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 unshowable, unwatchable, and took not six weeks, not six months, took two years, two years going back and forth with whoever was handling production overseas at the time to get it corrected. So, and again, I'm grateful social media didn't exist back then. Why? James there? What, she's I, dead and now she's not dead. What, yeah. What's going on? So, you know, that, 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 that for folks who watch the show, there is a certain sequence that they go, oh, that, that, that's not what I remember it being. 
um, if you're watching Disney Plus now. But also I want to put it out there that even if you saw it that first time and you remember it in a specific way, there is an authentic way you're supposed to be able to watch the show. Yeah. And here's the order. <laughs> yeah, which is which is fine. You know, we're we're happy we're happy to help. Yeah. So uh, before I let you guys go, I just have a question. Um, if you guys were to be able to do this kind of project where you're doing an art book or something more in the line of, uh, of previously on X-Men, but you did it on one of the other kind of animated shows you've worked on, whether it be one that you actually show run or just worked on and be more curious to kind of find out more of the, the you know, kind of the, the nuts and bolts of how that show kind of came together, what show would you be more, most interested to kind of go back and excavate? Personally, I'd be kind of interested in going back and excavating the history of Fox Kids Network. I just think there's a very interesting story to be told there. I mean, that's the place where you got to watch Batman, The Tick, Bobby's World. I mean, it was a it, it was a groundbreaking network. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that would be a, I think it'd be a really cool book. And there were awful lot of people your age. Power Rangers, for God's sake! Yeah. Power Rangers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Your age that. That for whom Fox Kids was the central thing, and it had a certain spirit to it for about four or five years, and then new people took it over and kind of dissipated it, and yeah. it was lost forever. But for four or five years there, it really was different. And Margaret's the reason why Margaret and Sydney, and we would start with them. So that would that would be our favorite book uh, as far as this individual episode, uh, individual uh, shows. There's, it, it's, There's a lot. It's, it's hard to pick. I really enjoyed setting up Exo Squad with Mark and Michael. Oh, yeah. Which is 52 episodes. Uh, which is what you guys started working on after you were let go from the first 13 of X Men because we didn't think there'd be another season. Right. It's 52 <laughs> episodes. It should have been 65. It was all laid out in the universe. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. And they didn't do the last part, but it was 52 episodes in a row. So it was very much serial storytelling and was it was to me a very. A very well done, you know, uh, something we should really be proud of. So, the Exos Club would be on top of my list. Hmm. I'm, I'm curious, and this I promise will be the last question. I'm just curious, looking at some of your, you know, kind of most recent credits. What does it feel like to working in animation today, and how does it differ? I mean, working on shows like Cody Kapow or Transformers: Robots in Disguise. Like, what is what is, has it been like, kind of working on on those shows? compared to, you know, in kind of the, more of the animation kind of heyday of the Saturday morning kind of cartoon era? Well, I'll tell you, it's, it's a different sort of, the approach isn't different, but what you just said, the fact that there is no more, hey kids, Saturday morning, there's four networks and everyone's going to watch something on TV. If a kid wants us to watch a show, the kid's got their cell phone, the kid's got their computer, their laptop, the, the, the way people are, are absorbing material now is very different, um, you know, and, and binge-watching is its own kind of beast. I love binge-watching, but I will take it to my grave that if you were a kid of a certain age and you watched X-Men and you loved it, you watched it every week for five years because you couldn't – maybe you could videotape it, but it was only on when it was on, you know, mm. no streaming. You, if you, and we've heard from folks who missed episodes because their mom scheduled dental appointments or something. <laughs> oh, Oh, bitter to this day over the Dark Phoenix. <laughs> yeah. yeah, not happy. Um, it's, it, it doesn't feel that much different to me. The you know, script is a script is a script. There's maybe more limitation on how big you can make the stories because uh, most of the story, you know, animation, the costs have gone way down or the returns have gone way down, and uh, I think some of the 
newer action shows. I, I don't know. Well, there's also um, timing now. You know, 22 minutes used to be the industry standard. Yeah. And now you can have anything from three minutes to seven minutes to 11 minutes. I mean, mm. so, you know, just the way... The way animation is consumed is different, yeah, but yeah. the writing of the scripts, the approaching of the material, uh, it re- remains the same. Yeah, we always wanted to write longer. We always wanted <laughs> two-parters or four-parters. Yeah. <laughs> and so the idea of writing 11 minutes and seven minutes, we've done that. Uh, and Happy to do more. And there's a skill to it. And for gentle little, say, preschool shows, that's fine. But for something more serious like X-Men, you really need some length, half an hour to an hour, to get you know, some detail to the characters in the story. I just don't think seven or 11 minute X-Men episodes would ever work. Hmm. Last question. This time I promise. Um, (laughs) Doing all the interviews for the book. I mean, obviously you've done a ton of interviews talking about it. Um, What is that kind of, how does it feel to kind of be on, you know, a press tour basically? And, you know, and everything's kind of virtual and you're not really doing cons right now, but you know, (laughs) you know, but doing kind of this, these these virtual press tours and kind of talking up the book and, and going on all, all these different podcasts, what has that process been like for you guys? Well, well the, the joy when Eric came out with Privy Stone X-Men was that was that became our, our, our entree into the world of cons and fests because we had not been really attending them before as, as guests and had really kind of found a rhythm, enjoyed yeah. it, had a great time, loved meeting the fans, got to travel a little bit. Uh, got to get the rea- reaction and response that has just been so meaningful and made this so important to us. And then COVID. Um, <laughs> the year 2020 just blows, you know, in a, in a global sense. <laughs> and uh, for the first time for us, we were going to get to go to New York City Comic Con to celebrate the release of the yeah, book in October. Backed by Marvel, and it was going to be a big Because uh, we're here in California, and that was going to be a big fun deal, getting to go to New York and which yeah, was good, you know, still happened in a year or two, but it's just we just are having like everybody else, we're having to be patient. Yeah, and it's frustrating that we can't get out there with this book that we love so much and it seems to have gotten such a, uh, a great response uh, from the people that have bought it. It's just going through. Uh, it's already in its third printing. I know how weird that is. It's only been out three weeks. <laughs> That's amazing, but uh, but so it's 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 doing well, and we're so proud of it, yeah. and we're so pleased with the response. But boy, it sure would have been fun yeah. to be able to be out there. So fingers, out and about. fingers crossed. A year from now, we'll be talking to you at a, at a Toronto Comic Con as opposed to over uh, podcast. Absolutely. Well, I mean, yeah, that'd be great if, if and when, you know, life goes back to that kind of normal where we can actually yeah. congregate and you know celebrate these types of things for sure. It may take a couple of years, you know, and that's just what it's going to take. But uh, hopefully, they'll the good old X Men. There'll still be an interest from the fan base. We hope, and that we can take the book out, books out, and continue to meet people. That would be spectacular. Yeah. Well, again, thank you so much for being so patient and so giving with your time. And again, the book is fantastic. People should pick it up. Um, and again, now that it's on its third printing, there's no excuse to being able to find one. Um, can I do a quick shout out? Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned. Some- yeah, we, we we try and do what we can. We are available on Twitter at X-Men TAS, which is for X-Men the Animated Series. You can also find us on Facebook, X-Men TAS. Also, we have a, our own um, webpage. We, we need to get a little more vigilant on that, but that's X-Men TAS.com. And we are new to Instagram, X-Men TAS. Please find us. You know, it's, it's Eric and me. We try and have fun and answer questions and be silly and... 
um, yeah, the more the merrier. But find us if you can on on the social medias because we're you know, we're trying to do what we can out there with that. You're extremely that active on on Twitter, so it's always entertaining to see because yeah, you're, you guys are responding to like I mean I can only imagine how much how many mentions and how many you know contacts are happening all day, and you guys seem so on top of it. I will admit, uh, what was it when when Disney Plus uh, rolled out X Men animated on um, on their UK channel on their UK streaming service? It, it folks because it, it came after they rolled it out here in the US. Folks are going, oh, yeah, Sarah, 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 and I was sitting there, my thumbs were smoking. I was retweeting <laughs> everything, and wouldn't you know it? I was so fast that uh, Twitter shut me down thinking I was a bot for three days. So I had to get in Twitter jail because they assumed I couldn't be a person. I had to be a robot. <laughs> but I was just so excited. That's awesome. Well, again, thank you so much, guys. It's great talking to you again. Thank you. Yeah, good to see you. <laughs> or not, but <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Bye-bye.